This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Cape Fear on Earth is also made possible by listeners and readers like you. You can support local journalism and Cape Fear on Earth by subscribing to the Star News today at StarNewsOnline.com slash subscribe. On November 27, 1862, the Wilmington Daily Journal declared victory over a merciless enemy. For more than two months, the city had been strangled by the grip of an invisible and unpredictable outbreak of yellow fever. At its height, the sickness would claim dozens of lives a day, right in the heart of the Civil War. But with the arrival of the first chill of winter, the disease was finally retreating. Tucked away inside the journal's Thursday edition, the newspaper's few surviving staff members joyously shared the news with their readers. General Yellowjack is no more. He has done all the mischief in his power, and he's finally yielded to his fate. Though we must say he died hard. The fate of most sinners. Between the sweltering summer heat of August and the first frost of November, 1862, More than 650 Wilmington residents would die from yellow fever, 6% of the city's population at the time. The epidemic of 1862 crippled a city already stretched thin by the demands of war. And the stories and words of those who lived through it, or fell victim to it, offer insight into a time of tragedy and panic, when Wilmington's greatest threat wasn't charging on a far-off battlefield, but looming on its doorstep. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. And this week, I am so excited to welcome everyone to the third season of our show. Whether you're a returning listener or you're joining us for the first time, we are thrilled to have you. This season, I've got some big things planned for Cape Fear Unearthed. And I've got some exciting stories to share with you that will take us from the origins of the Cape Fear region in Brunswick Town to the storied history and myths of the battleship North Carolina. We'll explore the rebellious age of prohibition in the Cape Fear region and dive deep into the heart of one of the coast's most important shipwrecks. And that's not even half of our season. But first, we're going to turn back the clock to 1862 to revisit the almost unimaginable tragedy of the yellow fever epidemic. How it arrived in Wilmington, why it proved to be so deadly, and how the city picked up the pieces after it was gone. As always, I'll share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle in for this brand new season of Cape Fear Unearthed, as I share with you the story of Wilmington's battle with the Yellow Death.
Yellow fever was already a vicious killer long before it arrived on the shores of the Cape Fear region. It hit New York and Philadelphia as early as the mid-1600s and would revisit the latter, then the nation's capital, in 1793, killing 5,000 people in a three-month period. Southern cities along the coast were often visited by the fever, with deadly outbreaks in New Orleans, Savannah, and Charleston reported in the first half of the 19th century. History tells that yellow fever arrived in North Carolina like most things did in the 1800s, through the Port of Wilmington. Reports of the day identified the carrier of such a scourge as the Kate, a blockade runner formerly working the waters around Charleston, that arrived in Wilmington in early August 1862. She had journeyed from Nassau in the Bahamas and successfully ran the port's Union blockade to deliver supplies desperately needed by the Confederacy. It is said that members of her crew on board were already sick with the fever when it arrived in Wilmington. And during the war, standard quarantine procedures for ships were overlooked in order to deliver supplies more quickly to Southern troops. As we've discussed in several previous episodes, Wilmington was a vital stronghold for the Southern cause and its port was essential for replenishing reinforcements, especially as the war between the states raged on. Wilmington at the time was a city of roughly 10,000 people, give or take a few hundred as southern regiments passed through the region. The coming epidemic would send more than half of the base population fleeing to other cities in fear for their lives. When she arrived, Kate docked along the wharf at the base of Market Street not far from the shop of 36-year-old Louis Schwartzman, a German-born wood and coal dealer. In early September, Schwartzman would become the first victim officially claimed by yellow fever, though some suggest a few others could have died before him and their cause of death not properly identified. Much of what we know from the yellow fever epidemic in Wilmington comes from newspaper reports, telegraph communications, and the detailed written accounts of several prominent local residents, most notably Reverend John L. Pritchard. During this time, Pritchard presided over the congregation at First Baptist Church at Fifth and Market Streets, and he wrote of the many funerals he would soon attend as the disease began to take hold. He personally sent his family to Richmond at the first sign of the coming crisis, but stayed behind to administer to the sick among his congregation. You're going to hear directly from Pritchard's memoir throughout this episode, as he provides a first-hand, compelling, and unsettling portrait of the fever spread through Wilmington. Following Schwartzman's passing, it was only a matter of days before more deaths began signaling the start of something sinister. By mid-September, the town's doctors officially concluded that yellow fever was the culprit. Historian James Brunt later reported that his father wasted no time in acting on word of the disease and quickly sent his family away to stay with relatives in Duplin County. Any other family with the means to do so would soon follow suit. In those first few weeks, there was hesitation to ring the alarm of an epidemic and frighten residents, though whispers and rumors racing through town did nothing to calm growing fears. Wilmington Mayor John Dawson even tried to temper the city's concerns 
by saying that as of September 16th, only five cases had been reported and they showed no signs of spreading further. The next day, the Wilmington Daily Journal reported no new cases had sprung up, writing, all the excitement will pass away in a few days. That would prove to be an extremely poor choice of words. Before we advance any further in our story, let's take a moment to explain what yellow fever actually is. The virus, which still kills thousands today in African and South American countries, is a viral infection that starts simply with a fever, chills, back and neck pain, a headache, and general fatigue. Within a few days of exposure, the victim would start to show signs of a high fever, vomiting, bleeding, shock, and a possible yellowing of the skin through jaundice, where the virus gets its name. In some cases, the victims in Wilmington were said to have thrown up black vomit. And as their organs began to fail, these victims would become delirious and grow weaker until they succumbed to the infection, often within days. Perhaps of greatest consequence for those cities paid a visit by the yellow fever during this time was a lack of knowledge that it's carried and spread by mosquitoes, a discovery that wouldn't be made until the next century. In Wilmington, residents were eager to try anything that could spare them from the disease. Some believed, or at least hoped, the sickness could be warded off by burning a pot of rosin in their homes. But their efforts just plagued the city with a persistent, ominous cloud of black smoke that smelled of gas. A newspaper article suggested that those working in gas industries were immune because they had inhaled fumes and even offered a home remedy to try and replicate the immunization by soaking a cloth in tar and oil and wearing it on one's chest. But the autumn's persistent heat and above-average rainfall would only prove to be an unrelenting accelerant for the disease. Less than two weeks after their declarations that the sickness would be short-lived, Mayor Dawson and the Journal had changed their tune on the fever. With 15 new cases reported on September 24th alone, Dawson sent an urgent telegraph to the Charleston mayor, pleading for supplies and more doctors to relieve local physicians working nonstop. Can you send us some experienced assistance for the sake of humanity, Dawson wrote. The call was answered within days, but with war already laying claim to doctors from nearly every town, there was only so many Charleston could spare. Plus, the rapidity and the progression of the disease would prove overwhelming for those in Wilmington in the coming weeks, no matter the resources. Reading Pritchard's day-by-day account of the epidemic today, the intensifying gravity of the situation begins to set in. Early on, he references his friend Dr. James Dixon as one of the first physicians to care for the sick. Pritchard said he asked Dixon, what he should do as more in his congregation contracted the fever. Well, I reckon you'll have to do as I do, Dixon told the Reverend. It's like war. We must take our chances. A little over a week after Pritchard wrote of that exchange, he attended Dr. Dixon's funeral at 4 p.m. on the afternoon of September 28th. As many as a dozen people are said to have died that day from the fever. As the body count grew and the constant fear of further infection lingered, the town all but shut down. 
Grocery stores, hotels, and bars closed because of a lack of staff willing to put themselves in direct contact with the potentially infected. The Daily Journal, which had been an important asset for circulating news from the mayor and physicians, announced it would cease full daily editions on October 13th due to a deserted newsroom. One reporter wrote, We can do no better. We can hardly do that. We will stick to our post and do all in our power. By mid-October, desolation was everywhere. A lone soldier sent to connect with the local military headquarters reported later that he didn't encounter a single person when he arrived on Market Street. It was a city of silence and gloom impenetrable, he wrote. From his perch, Pritchard said the mass exodus of residents left the port city more desolate than he had ever seen it. And yet, the worst was still to come, as October would prove to be the fever's deadliest month. General Yellowjack, as the fever was called, would be indiscriminate in his reaping. The young and the elderly were particularly susceptible, but eventually, no one was safe. Just lucky. Christopher Haywood Dudley, the son of Governor Edward Dudley and a planter in Wilmington, Christopher Haywood Dudley, the son of Governor Edward Dudley and a planter in Wilmington, was counted among the dead, as was the telegraph operator for the city, whose death on October 1st effectively cut the city off from communications about the ongoing war and incoming aid for the relief effort. By that time, most Carolina cities were putting up barriers between themselves and Wilmington. Fayetteville announced any person coming to town from Wilmington would be fined and removed after a local resident died while taking refuge in the city. Lumberton and other cities would soon issue their own quarantine orders. Apart from the little activity at the port and the few resources trickling into town, Wilmington was on its own. By this point, the city was seeing between 50 and 60 new cases of fever a day. The death toll was well outpacing the city's ability to secure proper burials for each victim. In September, Oakdale Cemetery, which had only begun operations in 1855, would begin burying the victims in a public burial ground, often mischaracterized as a mass grave. A few were lucky enough to get their own traditional resting place, like Elizabeth Day, a young woman born in London whose well-preserved headstone still sits under a tree on the edge of the fever victim's gravesite. She died on October 15th, her 32nd birthday. The mass interments would become a grim necessity of circumstance, one made all the more difficult by the fever-induced death of the cemetery's superintendent and record keeper, Charles Quigley. Later in the episode, we'll be joined by two guests to talk further about Oakdale's role in the epidemic and why Wilmington fell victim to such a savage outbreak of the disease. On October 16th, Reverend Pritchard solemnly wrote to his wife that he had taken ill. Initially, he only reported pain in his back and an unrelenting headache. Within a week, his son Robert began sending frequent reports back to his mother on the reverend's condition. Yellow fever strikes every person differently, meaning those who die usually do so within days, while some suffered from its crippling symptoms for weeks. 
Pritchard was among the latter group, suffering through days of intense pain and sleepless nights, while also showing heartened improvement other days. By the end of October, the number of new cases began to plummet, but the mortality rate increased. The fever was abating, but those already stricken were left to continue the fight. The bulletins dispatched by the newspaper began giving Weather Channel-level coverage of when the region's first frost would arrive. Although they didn't know that frost-prone mosquitoes were the carriers, they assumed the end of the heat and rain would do the trick in sending General Yellowjack on his way. On November 8th, an overnight frost formed to much celebration in town. The journal reported people began leaving their houses more and more in the following days, and the streets began to show signs of life again. The city's shipyard requested employees report back to work on November 17th. The journal resumed daily publication the same day by asking its surviving subscribers to contact the office so it knew who to send papers to. The fever was making its last stand, but it would do so by taking with it a few more lives. On November 13th, Reverend Pritchard died after nearly a month of battling yellow fever. Captain Ellis, an official in town, announced his passing in the journal, saying, He left us last night, at half past eleven o'clock, and with a sweet smile on his face, has gone to reap the rewards of his works. Reverend Pritchard would be one of the last to succumb to the fever in Wilmington. Today, it's hard to fathom the magnitude of yellow fever's impact in the fall of 1862. With surrounding communities and neighborhoods retreating inward to protect themselves from the disease, it wasn't until after it subsided that an assessment could be done of just how deadly it was. It is estimated that more than 1,500 people in Wilmington contracted the fever. 654 would die from it. Residents who took refuge elsewhere would soon return home, and Wilmington resumed its role as a vital port for the Confederacy, which had continued to fight for the Southern cause even as the port city became an infected ghost town. That November 27th journal article that declared the death of the fever also pleaded with surrounding communities to reopen channels with Wilmington and send resources, livestock, and medical supplies to help the city get back on its feet. The outbreak of yellow fever was certainly not exclusive to Wilmington. It had brought cities throughout the country and the world to their knees in the years before, and it would do so again in the years after. Although life returned to normal, the fever left a scar on Wilmington, a reminder that even the perils of war can be outmatched by the power of nature. Joining me now to talk further about the yellow fever epidemic of 1862 are Eric Cozen, the superintendent of Oakdale Cemetery, and Dave Rice, the former New Hanover County Health Director. Thank you both for being here. It's great to be here. My pleasure. So I want to kind of dig a little deeper into the yellow fever epidemic because I gave our listeners a pretty broad timeline, kind of a primer of what would have happened from the fall through that first frost in uh, November. But I want to start with you, David. What would Wilmington have looked like? before uh, yellow fever would have taken hold? I mean, would it, would it have been susceptible to an outbreak? 
Oh, absolutely. In fact, I read an article by Dr. Rag that was in the New York Medical Journal in 1867 where he gave a broad picture of how Wilmington was when he first arrived. He was a Confederate surgeon that was supposed to be an expert in smallpox outbreaks. So uh, basically what he said is he came into town and there was a canopy of smoke over Wilmington because people were burning barrels of rosin and tar and there was smoke everywhere. It had been a rainy season so there were puddles, uh, basements were flooded, uh, garbage was strewn everywhere because the scavengers or garbage collectors were no longer around because they they were in the military so it was a messy place it's hard to kind of fathom this is happening during war so you are kind of stretched thin already from just even those kind of municipal workers but also just people in town i mean there there would have been you know at this time it was about 10,000 people in wilmington but you know, more than half of them would leave That's as right. soon as kind of the word yeah. spread. And guess what? Physicians and nurses were also gone to the military. Yeah. And there was a few of those cases where the, the mayor asked, you know, Charleston or other places, but they can only send us so many as they could. I mean, you know, That's you don't correct. want to send all your doctors to an, another town where they'd be fighting a, a vicious disease. And so as it took hold, what would happen? Kind of paint a picture for me of what would happen. Um, you know, it was kind of a slow spread. There was, some, there was some hesitation to kind of ring that epidemic alarm at the beginning. But then, you know, the, the cases kind of started rapidly increasing, correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it uh, came to a peak uh, in mid-October. I believe uh, 431 cases were diagnosed on October the 17th, and uh, the next week they had a, a high of 111 deaths in one week. That's a, and that's a lot, and that kind of brings in Oakdale, uh, because Oakdale at this time had only been open uh, less than 10 years. 1855 was the, when it opened, correct, Eric? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah, so what, um, what was Oakdale's role in this, or, or how did Oakdale kind of become part of the story? Well, obviously, you know, after being um, just starting out in, in 1855, um, we did have a, a public grounds area, and it was just kind of set aside for indigents and so forth, and for people that might be passing through town. Um, and obviously, when this epidemic started to happen, um, more bodies started coming to the cemetery. So, but, you know, and a lot of the characterizations of this, you know, epidemic were that there were mass graves being dug and, you know, filled at Oakdale with the amount of deaths that were happening. But is that the best way to kind of characterize how Oakdale was playing a role in this? Well, um, actually, you know, I've, I found out the kind of the truth behind it when, um, when I was actually asked to digitize our records. Um, as we were kind of going through and, and you know, we, ha we keep our records kind of like the old school way of, of card catalog systems. So uh, every individual that's buried out there has a three by five index card. And when I was in, uh, put charge to digitize our records, um, you become very intimate with a lot of the folks that are being buried out there. And I soon started to realize that the area particular regards to the public grounds area, that multiple burials were taking place during this, this period. And what would happen would be, say, let's say, for instance, a, a wife would pass. Uh, a couple days later, the husband would pass. So the husband would actually be buried. They would reopen the grave where the, where the wife was buried at and bury the husband on top. And then, unfortunately, sometimes, um, you know, the children would follow or, you know, a mixture of, of, of those types of burials. And so we actually have some that are buried sometimes three and four people deep uh, within this particular location. 
So it's not, you know, a, a massive canal and bodies being thrown in. It, w- it was deliberate. It just had to be intentional, I guess, because of, of what was, you know, the, the sheer number of people dying. Yeah, that's correct. They didn't really have, obviously, any clue as to what was coming to them. Yeah. So, um, but as it started to become a little bit more evident, uh, they started to have some sort of a, of a burial practice of, of digging these graves in somewhat of, a, of an orderly manner. But obviously, considering the situation with many bodies coming at one particular time, um, they had to figure it out almost day by day. Yellow fever wasn't the only disease to come here. It wasn't, you know, yellow fever didn't come here to begin with, you know, Wilmington wasn't the first place that got it. Uh, but we also had a, a Spanish influenza outbreak in 1918. What kind of uh, impact did, it, did that have? Well, yellow fever took place over a couple, three months period in our community. Uh, the the height of uh, the pandemic influenza of 1918, it's only here for a couple, three weeks. So mm-hmm. it was pretty amazing. But in that time, um, There were 274 deaths in Wilmington and over 4,000 cases. Wow. And I looked it up and it said that, you know, throughout North Carolina as a whole, there were almost 14,000 cases and nationwide there were a million people who were infected. So, you know, you think about Wilmington being affected by yellow fever and and kind of being cut off from other cities to protect themselves, but that, that Spanish influenza kind of went everywhere. Well, and worldwide, uh, there are over 500 million cases and over 50 million deaths. Wow. That is, uh, that's, it, that's kind of hard to fathom some of those numbers. Going back to yellow fever, is there a chance that there are people buried at Oakdale that weren't recorded because, you know, even the superintendent at the time, he succumbed to, to yellow fever? Is there a chance that some of those records kind of fell through the cracks? Or do you feel like over time, research and, and dedication has been able to identify all the victims out there? No, I don't think we'll have a full account of, of all the people that were buried out there. Um, even my minutes uh, state that the um, you know the superintendent unfortunately does die as a result of, of the epidemic, and you know at that point in time the, the cemetery then had to find somebody else to to be able to step into that position. So it actually ended up being the uh, the gentleman who was the, the chairman of the sanitary commission, Phineas Fanning, um, who kind of stepped up to the plate. Um, only temporarily until a second uh, superintendent was located um, um, by Timothy Donlin. And, um, you know, even our records really stop at that time period uh, during the yellow fever because then the Civil War became very much to the front seat of that car. And we don't have records really starting, I mean, they actually stop in December of, of, of 1862 and don't pick up until 1867. Wow. So there is a, there's a gap there after that. How is this particular grave site uh, preserved in Oakdale? I know there's been a lot of efforts to you know, commemorate not only the victims of it, but also kind of help preserve it. You know, when people go out there, what are they going to see? Well, it's actually it's pretty much a snapshot in time. Um, you know, this particular location has close to 400 people buried in there, and only a handful of stones. Um, and we keep it that way um, just to, so people can kind of get that sense of of the emergency uh, tactics that took place during that time period. Uh, over the years since I've become superintendent, I've done some some. Uh, simple things out there in regards to Eagle Scout projects. Uh, you know, the first one I actually did was I actually went out there and planted 3,000 yellow daffodil bulbs in commemoration for the yellow fever epidemic um, victims that were there. 
And then shortly thereafter, uh, there was another Eagle Scout project that I had done that just really put up a sign uh, stating all the different names from that time period from September through November. And it's by looking at that sign, it's very evident how uh, increasing the, the number of bodies that showed up, especially for the month of October. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of a fascinating uh, plaque to look at because if you go out there, kind of stand facing the, the grave site and just kind of take in all those names, you know, some are, are mentioned as just children. Some are mentioned as, you know, there's a question mark here or there. Um, so, you know, a lot of their stories have been kind of retained over time, their names. But, you know, some of them did go the way of, of kind of being a little erased from history because of such a chaotic time. But it's really, really fascinating and really, I think, special to go look out there now and just kind of take it all in of, of this kind of final resting place for such a big chunk of Wilmington. Uh, so what do you guys think is the lasting impact of this particular dark chapter of Wilmington? Um, obviously, it, it took it claimed a lot of lives in Wilmington. Um, but how do you kind of move forward from a massive outbreak in a time of war? I mean, well, you can compare it to Hurricane Florence that hit us last year. It's difficult to get back where you were, but it pulls the community together and makes people work together. And as a result, you come back better than what you were. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously, it probably took even longer just because as soon as you could get back up on your feet after yellow fever, there's then the the needs of the Confederacy that's using Wilmington as mm-hmm. as a vital stronghold uh, as it moves through the war. So it's just kind of a, an interesting, smaller chapter of a much larger story in Wilmington's history uh, that it just happened to be a really dark chapter, you know, something very tragic that happened here in Wilmington. Um, well, thank you guys so much for talking to me about it um and you can go out to oakdale and see uh the the grave site of the yellow fever victims there are uh, other graves that were victims of that that are scattered throughout the cemetery and uh, we're going to be doing a walking tour out at oakdale later this fall uh, and we're going to bring in uh, dave and we're going to bring in eric and we're going to go talk about yellow fever so be on the lookout for details on that um, thank you both so much for being here That's it for the third season premiere of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of the yellow fever epidemic of 1862. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday to share a new chapter from our local history book. Until then, you can share your thoughts on this week's episode on Twitter with the hashtag CF Unearthed, or you can email me at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group where our listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week, I'm going to be sharing some pictures of people who died in the epidemic and some of the newspaper articles that were written about it during the time. And for this new season, I'm launching a Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter that will go out every Thursday. In the newsletter, I'm going to include links to our new episode and any of the supplemental pictures or videos that I unearthed in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Make sure you sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear on Earth was written edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. 
You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com and on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next week, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.